Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to the Ladies Promoting Transparent Advocacy Podcast. I am your podcast host, Shay Pate. Today is motivating, excuse me, marvelous Motivating Monday. And as usual, the news is constantly changing. So, so are my podcast episode subjects. Today, after watching 60 Minutes and listening to former President Barack Obama, he was talking about his book and what's happening in America. I decided that since um, it was an interesting watch to record his interview for 60 Minutes on CBS News, and you can go to probably YouTube and CBS News and actually look at it. This is audio, not visual. So if you want to see the interview, definitely go see it. But I thought his conversation would be more appropriate for today's Marvelous Motivating Monday. And I want you to listen to some of the things he's talking about, because as of today, Monday, November 16th, we are still not where we need to be as far as politics and the coronavirus. Now, in the state of Georgia, which is where I am right now, there are two Republican Senate seats up for grabs. And some of the stuff that former President Obama is talking about kind of gives people an idea of what's happening here in Georgia. For example, partisanship. Partisanship, he talks about, which you will hear in the interview, is happening right now with the uh, two Republican seats up for election. No one wants to tell President Trump that he lost. So they want to wait until after January 5th, 2021, which is literally (laughs) a couple of weeks before Trump is supposed to leave the White House um, before they say anything to him, which is really crazy because he lost, he lost, he lost. His own people are letting him know no cheating, no fraud. He lost. Yet when they were showing the clip in 2016 where he had 306 electoral votes but lost the popular vote he was talking trash did this a landslide you can't get you know you can't win this and this and that now ironically with the count of the votes still going on uh president-elect joe biden has 306 electoral college votes but he also has the popular vote. So he has more than what Trump had in 2016. So I'm just disappointed that the Republicans do not look at this as an embarrassment because this man is not going to win. And they're they're hoping that Mitch McConnell keeps the Senate seat by getting these two Senate, uh, these two Senate votes in Georgia. But this is one more reason, Georgia, 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 we got to get out and vote in January. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to connect with everybody I can. People are calling me left and right. What can we do? We got to get these seats. We got to get these seats because Mitch McConnell and the Republicans need to be held responsible, not just for letting Trump not hand over the transition money and the documents or whatever is needed, which has been part of the American uh, democracy forever. And they're also not allowing the coronavirus uh, cure to be handled the way it needed to be. Right now, we're still in limbo. And I'm thankful that Joe Biden was already vice president. So he kind of has an idea what needs to be done. And he's still pushing forward and meeting with the scientists and stuff. But people forget the coronavirus is not partisanship. 
It's not partisan. There's no partisanship. They don't just attack uh, Democrats. They attack Republicans. And in the state of Georgia right now, to this very day, there's so many people walking around without masks. And I'm just going to be real blunt about it. All the people, there's a lot of African-Americans too. Don't get me wrong, but I'm talking about in my experience right now, percentage-wise, they're Caucasians that are Trump supporters. And the reason why I say that is because of the areas in which I am traveling in. Excuse me, to go to the grocery store and maybe Home Depot. It's 100% Trump country. And they are looking at me and my family like we're the outcasts with our masks on. And they're walking around talking, laughing, spitting, all that stuff, and just spreading the virus here in Georgia. So we have to, if nothing else, we have to show them that we're not playing in here. We want these Senate seats. We want America, not just Georgia. We want America to get cured from this virus. And we can't do it right now with everybody acting the way that they're acting. The Republicans are acting like the virus don't exist. Meanwhile, we do have Republicans dying. And with all these rallies that has happened in the last couple of weeks or months, I'm sure the numbers are going to go up. Because if you remember when you looked at the map, they were trying to say only the Republican states were um, not catching it like the Democratic states, which is so stupid and silly because, like they say over and over again, diseases, viruses, they do not say, hold up, you're a Republican, let me keep going, and infect the Democrat. That is so ignorant. But as everyone keeps saying, no one's wanting to go against Trump right now because they don't want the, Dem I mean, the Republicans to be upset. And their voting base to be upset and don't come out and vote for these Georgia Senate seats. So we need to get these seats. We need to get these seats. We need to get these seats. Stacey Abrams is my girl. Anybody that know me in Georgia know I will campaign forever for her. And I did like relentlessly when she ran for the governor's seat. But she's one person. We need to get out and help her and help all the other organizations because, as she says, there's a lot of them involved, not just Fair Fight. But we know she's our, our, our captain, pretty much, of trying to help get these voters out. So those who have voted, please vote again in January. Those who have not voted, please vote in January. Um, make sure you're registered. And on November 14th, oh, tomorrow, no, excuse me, December 14th, I apologize. I'm getting excited. Uh, it'll be early voting in Georgia. So you can early vote if you're worried about the lines being too long in January. You could do the ballots um, if you're worried about getting out and catching it. But whatever you do, vote, 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 because it is vital that we get out and vote. And one thing I want to mention to the listeners, if you have no idea of how to get a ballot uh, for the state of Georgia, that is, you can always go to the Secretary of State website. And if you aren't really sure about that, let me just tell you, you can go to https backslash ballotrequest.sos.ga.gov. And that is requesting a ballot from the Secretary of State of Georgia. That's their website. You can get a mail-in ballot registration there. So please vote, vote, vote by all means necessary. 
And definitely make sure you're registered to vote if you have not voted in the past. So listen to this uh, 60-minute interview with Scott. And I love Scott. He's a great interviewer and former President Obama. On election night 2016, then-President Barack Obama called Donald Trump at about 3 o'clock in the morning to congratulate him, even though Mr. Trump had lost the popular vote and took the Electoral College by less than 1% in three states. Today, President Trump declines to accept the verdict of the voters, despite losing by greater margins to President-elect Joe Biden. Mr. Obama hasn't spoken of the election standoff until today. We spoke to the 44th president on the release of his new book, A Promised Land, a memoir of his early years and first term. The story will continue in a moment. What is your advice in this moment for President Trump? Well, the president is a, a public servant. They are temporary occupants of the office by design. And when your time is up, uh, then it is your job to put the country first and think beyond your own ego and your own interests and your own disappointments. Um, my advice to President Trump uh, is if you want at this late stage in the game to be remembered as somebody who put com country first, uh, it's time for you to do the same thing. In your view, it is time for him to concede. Absolutely. I will. I mean, I think it was time for him to concede probably uh, the day after the election uh, or at the latest two days after the election. Uh, when you look at the numbers objectively, uh, Joe Biden will have won handily. There is no scenario in which uh, any of uh, those states would turn the other way and certainly not enough to reverse uh, the outcome of the election. More than the courtesy of a concession, the Trump White House is declining to free up the usual funds and facilities for the incoming administration. President-elect Biden is not receiving secret national security briefings, as Mr. Trump did when he was president-elect. What, in your estimation, would our adversaries be thinking right now, Russia, China, about the fact that the transition is not moving forward? Well, I, uh, look, I think our adversaries have seen uh, us weakened. Not just as consequence of this election, but over the last several years. Uh, we have these cleavages in the body politic that uh, they're convinced they can exploit. There's an old adage that partisan politics should uh, stop at the water's edge, right? That when it comes to uh, a foreign policy, that it is the United States of America, uh, not the divided States of America. We met the former president at a symbol of America's past divisions. The Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery was a hospital in the Civil War. Clara Barton and Walt Whitman cared for patients in the building where the 16th president consoled his wounded. We joined Mr. Obama's peers in the Gallery of the Presidents to talk about his book. I'm curious about the title. I think a lot of people feel that we are farther from a promised land. Well, I, I titled it The Promised Land because even though we may not get there in our lifetimes, even if we experience hardships and disappointments along the way, uh, that I at least still have faith we can uh, create a more perfect union. Not a perfect union, but a more perfect union. You write in the book, 
Our democracy seems to be teetering on the brink of a crisis. What do you mean? We have gone through a presidency that disregarded a whole host of basic institutional norms, uh, expectations we have for a president that uh, have been observed by Republicans and Democrats uh, previously. Uh, and maybe most importantly, uh, and, and uh, most disconcertingly, what we've seen is what some people call truth decay, something that's been accelerated by outgoing President Trump, the sense that not only do we not have to tell the truth, but the truth doesn't even matter. What are these false claims of widespread election fraud doing to our country right now? President doesn't like to lose and uh, never admits loss. Uh, I'm more troubled by the fact that other Republican officials who clearly know better are going along with this, are humoring him in this fashion. Um, it is one more step in delegitimizing not just the incoming Biden administration, but democracy generally. And that's a dangerous path. We would never accept that out of our own kids behaving that way if they lost. I, I, I mean, if, if, if my daughters in, in any kind of competition uh, pouted and, and then accused uh, the other side of uh, cheating when they lost, when there was no evidence of it, we'd scold them. You know, I, I think that there has been uh, this sense over the last several years that literally anything goes and is justified in order to get power. Uh, and uh, you know, that's not unique to the United States. There are strong men and dictators around the world who think that I can do anything to stay in power. Uh, I can kill people. I can throw them in jail. I can run phony elections. I can suppress journalists. Um, but that's not who we're supposed to be. And one of the signals, I think, that uh, Joe Biden needs to send to the world is that, no, those values that we preached and we uh, believed in and subscribed in, uh, we still believe. President-elect Biden won in this election more votes than anyone in history. Yeah. And yet, the 2020 vote wasn't a repudiation of Donald Trump. It was more like an affirmation. He received 71 million votes, 8 million more than he did in 2016. What does that tell you about our country today? Well, A, it tells us that we're very divided. And as I said, it's not just the politicians now. The voters are divided. Um, it has now become a contest where issues, facts, policies per se don't matter. Uh, as much as identity and wanting to uh, beat the other guy. Uh, yeah, that's taken priority. I do think the current media environment adds to that greatly. This democracy doesn't work if we don't have an informed citizenry. This democracy doesn't work if we don't have uh, responsible elected officials at other levels who are willing to call the president when he's not doing something right. Call him on. It seems, though, Mr. President, that Americans have gone from disagreeing with one another to hating one another, the a problem that this man had. Uh, you know, and I wonder, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good example of uh, somebody who uh, I think understood deeply uh, the need to, to be able to see uh, another person's point of view. How do we overcome 
where we are today. There's no uh, American figure that I admire uh, any more than Abraham Lincoln, but he did end up uh, with a civil war on his hands. I think we'd like to avoid that. Uh, I, I do think that uh, a new president can set a new tone. That's not going to solve all the gridlock in Washington. I think we're going to have to work um, with the media and with the tech companies to find ways to inform the public better about the issues and to uh, bolster the, the standards that ensure we can separate truth from fiction. I think that we have to work at a local level. When you start getting to the local level, mayors, uh, county commissioners, et cetera, they've actually got to make real decisions. It's not abstractions. It's like, we need to fix this road. We need to uh, get this snow plowed. We need to make sure our kids uh, have a, a safe playground to, to, to play in. And uh, at that level, I don't think people have that kind of visceral hatred. And, and that's where we have to start in terms of rebuilding the social trust we need for democracy to work. Mr. Obama is speaking after four years of virtual silence on Donald Trump. He followed a traditional commandment largely observed since Adam succeeded Washington. Thou shall not criticize your successor. In A Promised Land, he wonders if that was a mistake. In your book, you ask, quote, whether I was too tempered in speaking the truth, too cautious in word or deed. Many Americans, Mr. President, believe you were too cautious, too tempered. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, a legitimate and understandable uh, criticism. At the end of the day, I consistently tried to treat my political opposition uh, in the ways I'd want to be treated, to not overreact when, for example, uh, somebody yells, you lie, in the middle of me giving a joint congressional address. I understand why there were times where my supporters wanted me to be more pugilistic, to, you know, uh, pop folks uh, in the head and, 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 and duke it out a little bit more. Was uh, it a mistake that you didn't? Every president brings a certain temperament to office. I think part of the reason I got elected was because I sent a message that fundamentally I believe the American people are good and decent and that um, politics doesn't have to be uh, some cage match in, uh, in which uh, everybody is, is going at each other's throats uh, and that we can agree without being disagreeable. There have been worse presidential transitions than 2020. The southern states seceded while Lincoln was president-elect. Still, we couldn't help but notice, outside the National Portrait Gallery, businesses are still boarded up against the fear of political violence. What should President Trump do on this next inauguration day? Uh, look, there, there are a set of traditions that we have followed in the peaceful transfer of power. The outgoing president congratulates the incoming president, instructs the government and the agencies to cooperate with the new government coming in. You invite the president-elect to the Oval Office. How are you? And then on Inauguration Day, the president invites the president-elect to the White House. 
there's a small reception and then you drive to the inauguration site and the outgoing president sits there is part of the audience as the new president is sworn in and at that point the outgoing president is a citizen like everybody else and owes the new president the chance to do their best uh, on behalf of the american people whether uh, donald trump uh, will do the same thing uh, we'll have to see so far that's not been uh, his approach um, but uh, you know uh, hope springs eternal there's a promised land out there somewhere two hours after mr obama said that President Trump tweeted from the White House, we will win, even though no state is reporting fraud or errors that could change the outcome. We'll be back with Barack Obama on other crises in our country and one in his own home. During Barack Obama's first inauguration in 2009, unknown to the public, there was intelligence that a terrorist attack was planned. President Obama had at the podium instructions he would read to the crowd should there be an evacuation of nearly two million people from the National Mall. This is one of the insights in Mr. Obama's new book, A Promised Land, a memoir of his early years, his historic election, and his first term. He spoke to the 44th president about battles past and present. The story will continue in a moment. Did you watch the video of George Floyd's strangulation? Of course. It was heartbreaking. Um, very rarely, though, did you see it so viscerally and over a stretch of time where the humanity of the victim is so apparent, the pain and the, the vulnerability of, of someone uh, so clear. And it was, I think, a moment in which America, for a brief moment, came face to face with uh, a reality that African-Americans in this country, I think, had understood for quite some time. And I was heartened and, and uh, inspired by the, the galvanizing effect that it had on the country as a whole. Um, the fact that it wasn't just black people, it wasn't just so quote unquote liberals who were appalled by it, reacted to it, and eventually marched. But it was everybody. And it was, uh, a, a small first step in the kind of reckoning with our past and our present that so often uh, we avoid. But Mr. President, Trayvon Martin, yeah. Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, right. George Floyd, right. why is this injustice never overcome? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is that we have a criminal justice system in which we ask, oftentimes very young, oftentimes not very well-trained uh, officers to go into communities and just keep a lid on things. And you know, we don't try to get at some of the underlying causes for chronic poverty. So if we're going to actually solve this problem, there are some specific things we can do to make sure that our contracts with police officers uh, don't completely insulate them when they do something wrong. Putting money into budgets for training these police officers more effectively. Teaching police officers not to escalate, but to de-escalate. 
but it's important for us not to let ourselves off the hook and think this is just a police problem because those shootings that devaluation of life is part and parcel with a legacy of discrimination and Jim Crow and segregation that we're all responsible for. And if we're going to actually put an end to racial bias in the criminal justice system, we're going to have to work on doing something about racial bias in corporate America and bias in where people can buy homes. And, and that is a larger project in which all of the good news is all of us can take some responsibility. We, we can all do better on this front than we've been doing. Scott, how are you? Elbow bump? I'm well, Mr. President. We joined the president this past Wednesday behind masks and then kept our distance as the U.S. counted 143,000 known COVID infections that day, a new record. Mr. Obama had also faced an outbreak in his first term, a new flu, H1N1. Well, I was terrified of it uh, and very quickly mobilized a team uh, to figure out how are we going to take uh, the best possible approach. And from the start, I had some very clear criteria, which was number one, we're going to follow the science. And the second thing was, let's make sure we're providing good information to the American people. But H1N1 was not as contagious nor as lethal as COVID. It ultimately killed 12,000 Americans. Other battles in his book include the financial crisis, passing the Affordable Care Act, the decision to kill Osama bin Laden, and leaving eight years of work in the hands of another. You begin the book by writing about the day that you left Washington, quote, to someone diametrically opposed to everything we stood for. That may be the one thing that uh, Donald Trump and I agree on, <laughs> is that he doesn't agree with me on anything. I don't see him as the cause for our divisions and the problems with our government. I think he's an accelerant, but they preceded him. And sadly, uh, are gonna likely outlast him. You write in the book that Republicans had a battle plan to quote, refuse to work with me, regardless of the circumstances, the issue or the consequences for the country. Now, the same might be said of Democrats in a Republican administration. Yeah. I wonder if today you think that Democrats and Republicans are no longer capable of compromise. First of all, I don't think this is uh, just a plague on both their houses here. So the Democrats opposed George Bush on a whole bunch of stuff. But Ted Kennedy worked with George Bush to pass uh, a prescription drug plan for seniors. Nancy Pelosi, who adamantly opposed the war in Iraq, time and again voted, even when her base was angry about it, to make sure that our troops were funded once the decision uh, to send the troops to Iraq uh, went in. Mr. Obama blames gridlock on something old and something new. The Senate's filibuster tradition, which allows whatever party is in the minority to block legislation and non-traditional media. The media landscape has changed. And as a consequence, voters' perceptions have changed. So that I think Democratic and Republican voters have become much more partisan. I would often hear this from Republicans uh, during my presidency. Some of these folks have been colleagues of mine. I, I served in the Senate. Some of them were friends of mine. And they would confess to me. I said, look, 
Mr. President, I know you're right, but if I vote with you on this, I'm going to get killed. I'll lose my seat because what had happened is their voter base had soaked in so much information that was demonizing me, demonizing the Affordable Care Act, that it becomes very difficult even for folks who want to cooperate to cooperate. And that's why uh, I am somebody who does not blame the current partisanship solely on Donald Trump or solely on social media. You already saw some of these trends taking place early in my presidency, but I do think they've kept on getting worse. The former president also writes about his unlikely rise, including the obstacles at home. You're surprisingly honest in the book about your wife's opposition to you running for president in 2008. You quote her as saying, the answer is no. I do not want you running for president. God, Barack, when is it going to be enough? Did I get the tone right? Uh, it was a little sharper than that, but it was pretty good, Scott. And then she walks out of the room. Why did that not stop you? Look, it's a legitimate question. Keep in mind the context here. We had, just two years earlier, I'd run for the U.S. Senate in an unlikely race. Two years before that, I had run for Congress. In a race you lost. In a race I lost. A couple of years before that, I'd run for the state Senate. We've got two young kids. Michelle's still working. And I ask myself in the book, you know, how much of this is just megalomania? How much of this is vanity? How much of this is me trying to um, prove something to myself? And over time, she made a conclusion that I shouldn't stand in the way of this. Um, she did she so. should not stand in the way of your ambitions yeah. to be president. Yeah, and, and, and she did so grudgingly. Um, and the fact that I ended up winning didn't necessarily alleviate <laughs> Her, her frustration because the toll it takes on families is real. I think it's only after you emerge from an all-consuming job that you realize that everything you hold dear is thanks to the one you love. I think I actually realized that even while I was in the job. Um, the fact that she put up with it and forgave me <laughs> was uh, an, an act of of grace that I uh, am grateful for, uh, and I'm not sure I deserved it. The goal here, Scott? Today, at age 59, Mr. Obama is working on his presidential center. So this is going to be on the south side of Chicago in historic Jackson Park, and uh, it's, it's the place where Michelle and I met, where I first started in public life. His team brought this model to show us. Mr. Obama's foundation has raised from private donations a little over half the estimated $500 million cost. It'll take about four years once they start. It's uh, going to be a place where, you know, we have the standard model Oval Office and Michelle's dresses, which will be very popular, no doubt. Um, also, you know, a whole host of facilities that allow us to provide classroom training to young people who are interested in uh, public service and, you know, to beautify a park that uh, can serve uh, a whole bunch of young people who've been uh, underserved in the past. In his last moments in the Oval Office, Mr. Obama left a note in the president's desk for his successor. It read in part, we are just temporary occupants of this office. It's up to us to leave the instruments of our democracy at least as strong as we found them. On that last day 
the emotions really focus on the team that you've been working on. And it's very rare outside of maybe wartime where you get a collection of people working together in a sustained way under that kind of pressure and stress. And so there's a melancholy to it. There was also though, and I write about this, a satisfaction in knowing that I had uh, finished the job, I had run my stretch of the race, and I could say unequivocally, despite regrets and disappointments about some things not getting done, um, the country was better off uh, when I left than when I, when I got there. Producer Maria Gavrilovich uncovering Barack Obama since 2007 at 60minutesovertime.com. Well, everybody, as you heard, President, former President Obama, I wish he could run another term, but anyway, former President Obama kind of put everything out there. And I want you guys to just think about a lot of this that's going on. And he mentioned something that I wanted to mention, and I'll just briefly mention this about how this administration didn't start the problem, but they added gas to the fire of the racial discrimination, uh, systematic racism, hatred, division It is being caused in America. And I want to talk about my own personal experiences with some of my friends. As I always mention, I have a variety of uh, friends of different races. And it was really saddened to me that several, and I do mean several, of my Caucasian friends who did not vote for Trump, but all of their family members did, were literally ostracized in their own house, in their families. They've been disowned. I even had a friend whose entire family, who she takes care of, like went off on her at home after the day of the election and um, the whole week until they declared uh, President-elect Biden as the winner. And it was really sad because these friends of mine are good people. They treat their friends and family well from what I know. And to have people that you're taking care of living in your house, talking to you and disrespecting you over a vote. And they are definitely the family members that are out there protesting, cheat, fraud, lie. And some of them were sharing some of the different posts that their family members were putting on social media against them. And it just hurt my heart. You know, one friend, her whole family is not working and she's taking care of them and they're treating her like dirt. So um, that's wrong. I mean, it's just an election. But you guys might want to think twice about how you treat family and friends. And I'm real honest with my coworkers. Uh, I know one that I work with is part of my social media. And that's on purpose. We're great friends and all that. But I may say something that they may not like. And even my Caucasian friends, especially, uh, I they always get mad because they're like, why are we? We're so close. Why aren't we on uh, social media? Why aren't we social media friends? And I'm real honest with them. I'm like, because some of the things I say you may not like and it might end our friendship. So I just rather not do that. I like the friendships we have. I like the disagreements, but I don't want you to... Um, this only because you're upset with me about saying things about someone you voted for. So we need to be a little more mindful of that. And this is just an election. And like President Obama said, 
the White House occupancy is very temporary. And unfortunately, Trump thought he was going to probably live there until he dies. Um, he's not trying to leave. That's going to be unfortunate if they have to drag him out on January 20th. But it's even more unfortunate that as President Obama, former President Obama, it's hard to say former, but um, as he mentioned, uh, these Republicans are allowing this and they have to remember there will be a time they're all up for re-election and we need to remember that as well. And we need to get out and get these two Senate seats so that Mitch McConnell can sit his butt down and we can get some real governing done. Because partisanship is not good when we're talking about coronavirus killing people every day that doesn't care if you're a Republican, independent, or uh, Democrat. And that is the number one thing, because if we don't get this under control, it doesn't matter about anything else, stock market or jobs or anything, because everything's going to collapse. And as all of the different people called to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden, it was really interesting for some of the audio that you hear. They're so excited and they're hoping that America can get its act together before they're all dead from coronavirus. So. Anyway, that is my comment, and I want you guys to continue to listen to me and continue to uh, adjust to my audio. It's a real crazy right now. I have a um, a whole room that I have my equipment in. I have, a, like as I already mentioned, a five-channel mixer. I have several microphones, so the volume is, is tricky. I am doing my own engineering and I'm learning that I have some equipment that's a little more technology advanced than the other, and they collapse periodically. Uh, so sometimes my filter on my regular microphone does well, and it is much clearer, and it's not as loud. Um, unfortunately, I have a loud vocal volume, so I talk loud anyway. So it sounds like I'm screaming half the time, and especially if I'm interviewing someone. So I apologize. I have no engineer. This is just me. And I'm not going to lie. I have no idea about engineering. I'm learning. I've learned a lot. If you check the previous episodes, you'll see my progression. But I ask that you continue to work with me and um, just keep tuning in because once this coronavirus is under control, I want to go out into the streets and find out what the people want, what we need to, who we need to hold accountable, and uh, how we can bridge the gap to make America united again because we forgot that whole thing it's just america now it's not even the united states of america so we we are about empowering people uh women specifically but men we always love you and that's why you have a fantastic fellow friday episode i mean day and we do episodes uplifting our men of all races uh i just want you guys to continue to uh just pray and if you're not religious and pray wish or whatever that we can come together as one we don't have to like each other but we need to come together because i was always told you can make a difference as one but you can make a bigger difference as a group so hopefully you guys will take that with you and i'm going to ask that you follow us on twitter at advocacy ladies that's capital a is in advocacy capital l is in ladies you can definitely give us a call at 404-855-7723. And I definitely want you to follow me on my podcasting uh, at Podbean. Uh, I really want to do live. And I also want to go on and get a YouTube page so we can do visual. 
But I can't do that without the listeners. So I need you to listen and follow and share all the information. I am on all the major apps, uh, Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Alexa Tune In, and also Pandora. So, you know, I like to end all my episodes with the famous question, what do you have to say? Thank you for listening.